If you have your copies of the scriptures, I hope you do. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 will be verse 1 to 11 this morning. his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we come to... I think what is for most of us a familiar story, at least in concept, I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, renew us again, Father, to the wonder and the majesty of the grace that's before us in the cross, that we would marvel at Jesus both in his divinity and justice, Father, in his grace and in his mercy that it would empower us to go and sin no more. Father, would you speak to us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I know perhaps for some of you, reading that text was a little difficult because it didn't appear in the primary section or body of your scripture, but it may have actually been in a footnote um, where, where it was smaller in, in text, in font, uh, or at least it was bracketed, um, because this text does not actually appear in most of the earliest manuscripts in Scripture. Um, and so, that's why it's bracketed, that's why it may be even footnoted, um, and not among the primary text in your copies of the Scripture. So, this morning, uh, just by way of introduction, I want to take a moment to just speak to that, to speak to what do we do with these Areas of Scripture um, that, that are textual variances, and I'll get into that in a minute. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but because particularly in our culture and in our day, the, the authenticity and authority of God's Word is not only coming into question, but is directly being attacked, um, it's important for us as Christians to be knowledgeable and to know what to do. What do you do with a text like this? Um, and, and particularly as preachers, 
do we preach this? Do we not? You know, how do we handle this? So I want to just do that as a by way of introduction, and then we'll get into the text itself. Um, and my outline is very simple. Um, I want to lay this out in three different areas: one, the trap that's laid; two, the play of Jesus; and then three, the victory. Okay, so the trap, the play, and the victory. Very simple. Okay, so first though, the, the, what do we do with this text? I mean, you, you have a text like this that, like I said, that doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. So I- if you don't know, some of you may know, some you may not, but I think it's good for us to review this. How was the New Testament created? It's important for us to, to know that. Um, and if you've never done your own personal study uh, of just the history of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, how it was fashioned, um, and how it came to, to be and together, I'd really encourage you to, to do that. Um, you know, spend, spend a couple of evenings, do some research on that. You will be very encouraged. Um, it is not time wasted for sure. Um, you know, not only just for your own personal information and edification, but just to see the wonder of God in preserving His Word written throughout history um, and, and how the, the scriptures are different uh, in their coming to being than really any other religious text. Um, but just in, 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 in brief this morning, because I won't cover this in, in its entirety, but just in brief, in the New Testament, as Paul wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, or as one of the gospel writers wrote down their account of the gospels, or you know, these things were written and penned, they were written down and then they were handed to the churches and oftentimes they were read in amidst the congregation. And that congregation said, others need to hear this. Others need to, you know, to have this. And so they would make a copy of that or they would make multiple copies and then they would pass those out. And so you have copies that are being made of the originals and those are being handed out. Those go on to another church. Okay, so the, the, the churches, when Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, he's writing to the churches that are in Galatia. It's not just the church at the city of Galatia. It's uh, throughout this region. And so his letters were being passed. And as they were being passed from church to church, they're being copied. And it's amazing because he's writing pretty much just in their face, at least particularly with the Galatians. He's just, I mean, he's calling them out. And they're being convicted. And they're like, okay, you know, we need to pass this on. And so those copies are being handed out and being passed and being passed. And so you have copies of copies of copies of copies. And this is where... Being today, as these copies are found, they're collected, and then people who, uh, scholarly individuals who, uh, their job is basically textual criticism of looking at these copies and going, are they authentic? Or you know, do we do we have as close as we can determine what was said in the original written uh, uh, written letters and things? And so this is this is how the New Testament came to be: is basically collecting all of those you know, to, uh, to, together um, in, order to, in order to verify, you know, what was authentic. And so this is where we get into a text like this, this particular text, at least in the earliest manuscripts that we, that we have, it, it doesn't exist. It's, it's not there, okay? Now, for some, that, that's upsetting. That's like, well, wait a minute, you know, then can we really, can we really trust the word of, uh, of God and the way that God has fashioned it. And again, you know, it's my, not my intent to get into how this comes into being, you know, and, and the, the nature of what we believe, you know, regarding the scriptures and, and their, their authenticity. But let me just say this kind of as a summary. This text, its presence, doesn't change any major doctrine, you know, throughout scripture. If anything, it actually supports everything else that you see about the nature of grace in the gospel and who Christ was and who Christ is. 
So it supports everything else that, uh, that is consistent within Scripture. Okay, so it doesn't alter, it doesn't change any, uh, any core doctrines, it doesn't change the gospel at all. Okay? Um, and not only that, but John even writes at the end of his, uh, of his gospel, and he said, Jesus did so many more things that I can't contain in these pages that others who are writing, <coughs> excuse me, they're, they're going to leave out. Jesus did so many other things. You know, and so this story is in keeping with the nature and character of who Jesus was, and it's very likely that this actually happened. Okay, but like I said, it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, and so from a writing and textual critic standpoint, to be genuine and to, be, uh, uh, to try and be truthful this is included in scriptures because ultimately we don't know if it was in if it was original in its manuscript, <coughs> in the original manuscript or not. It doesn't look like it was, at least until an earlier manuscript could be found, perhaps in the future, that would show that it is. But right now, to be faithful, most Bible scholars will put this as a footnote or they'll bracket it and just simply say, you know, this isn't found in the earliest manuscript. <coughs> Excuse me. So, some preachers don't, te- uh, don't preach this, uh, this story. They don't, they don't preach it. They'll skip right over it. Uh, over it. Others do. Alan and I talked about it, and we said, you know, because this fits well within the, the story of John's gospel, because of the way that it, that it flows, it's natural for it, to, for, for it to fit here, but also because the theme of grace that's in this story is so prevalent throughout the rest of Scripture, we said, we're, we're going to teach this. And we're going to teach this. And we're going to teach it, like I said, because... The theme of grace that's in here and who Jesus was, this has been throughout the whole rest of Scripture. So we're not at a loss by not teaching it, but we feel like we're benefited if we do teach it. Okay, so I hope that's helpful. If it, if it bothers you, <coughs> see me afterwards, see Alan, you know, but I would encourage you, if that kind of just ticks in your brain, like, hmm, I have questions about you know, this, this, this aspect of Scripture, Start doing your own digging. I mean, this is a great opportunity for you to really ask the hard questions of Scripture and say, Lord, I, want, I need to see. I need and strengthen my faith here in your word. I, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Okay? So there's just, like I said, this very big, you know, two minutes, a big umbrella of a very big complex topic. Okay? But I hope that is helpful. So again, here's my outline real quick for, for, for this text. You can look at the trap that's laid for Jesus. His play... Okay, how does, he, how, does, how does he respond? And then the victory. All right, so let's look at the trap first. <coughs> Excuse me. So here's the setting. Jesus goes into the temple, as is his custom here, and he's teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes come in and they bring this woman. Now, it's important to understand the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were really, they were a ruling party. You could almost think of them as kind of a political party, you know, really, but, but that's, that's rooted in a religious, uh, that's rooted in religion, basically. Okay, so they're, they're this ruling party, basically, amongst the Jews. And the scribes, the scribes were, they were the theologians, they were the law keepers, uh, they were the lawyers, okay? So they're the ones that are looking at the law, this deciding and dissecting it, basically, you know. And some of the scribes were Pharisees, um, but not all of them, okay? Some of the Pharisees, they may have been scribes, okay, but not all of them. So, so you have the people who are looking at the law and deciding how you understand it, and then you have the ones who are basically pushing and advocating for how that should be carried out amongst people, okay? So you have these two 
these two groups of people, basically, okay? And, and the important thing is, is these are heavy hitters. When you look at the culture, at least within the Jews, these are heavy hitters. These, these are people who have big influence. Water. Oh, thank you. Yes. I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to put it there because that would be bad. Okay. <coughs> All right. So these, these two groups of people come before Jesus here in the court, and they catch this woman in adultery, and they bring her before Jesus. Okay, now, something should catch us right off the bat, okay? Um, because it's not just, when you have adultery, okay, let's, let's be adults. Okay, when you have adultery, okay, it, it takes two. It takes two to dance, okay? There's, there's two players in there. You can't commit adultery with just one person. It takes two. And yet, they only bring the woman. Here, so if you're paying attention as you're reading, something ought to take in your mind and go, something's off here. Where's the guy? Now, where, where's the guy in the midst of this? So something su- should catch us here. Okay. Now another thing we should we should distinguish here is the difference between adultery and fornication. Okay, fornication in the, in the Old Testament um, was uh, s- was sexual misconduct between two unmarried people. Adultery was when you, you had that misconduct that was happening and at least one of those individuals was married or was betrothed or was engaged. Okay, that, that's important. Right? And the, the, in the Old Testament, it was, uh, it, it, it was written throughout the Old Testament that they were to be, uh, they were to be killed. Okay, but specifically, the specific means of, uh, uh, of execution for a woman who was betrothed, who was engaged, was stoning. Now, we're not told that this woman was engaged, but it's very likely that, you know, that she was, specifically because of the, the means of execution that's given. Okay? Um, and so that's the, uh, that's the setting here with, this, uh, with, what's, with what's going on. Okay? Now, there's a couple things we, c- we need to draw out of this okay, for the, the context of this, because this, this parallels so much you know, with, our, with our current culture. Okay? We need to notice here that Scripture, again, puts a high premium on covenant fidelity in marriages. Okay? Right, I mean, the, no, nobody here in this setting stands up and goes, that's just brutal. To stone this woman, that's just brutal. Now, this would offend our current culture. Okay? Not the fact that of what she did, but the idea of stoning. Okay? Th- that's, that's what would, I think would be offensive in our, in our current culture. But nobody there has a problem with that. The, 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 tension, the tension is in how do we understand the law you know, that's going on here. Okay? But the important thing is throughout Scripture, God puts a premium on covenant fidelity in marriages. Okay? It's his design. Okay, God designed this, and he, he instituted Adam and Eve, and he, told, and he told, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, he gives them the covenant of marriage. He said, this is good for you. This is good, knowing that they were going to sin. Knowing that they were going to sin, that they were going to be kicked out of the garden. Okay, and he didn't pull that grace of marriage away from them, but he knew, knew in, his, in his sovereignty, he knew that this is going to be a good thing that will point you back to me. going to put two sinners together, okay, in a union and, and, and I'm in there too. Okay? Put them together. And this is designed to point you back to me. Okay? But it's, it's good. It's designed for good. It's designed for your thriving. Okay? In the midst of the family. Okay? That you would bear children. 
All right? And, that, and that, that you would raise their children in fear and admonition of me, that you would teach them about me. Okay, all of this is in design. Okay, it's, it's all good. And God puts a high premium on it. Okay, he's not just sitting up there going, well, I just, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want you to, you know, if you do this, you're disobeying me. He said, no, no, this is, I'm, I'm giving this punishment in the Old Testament because this is so crucial to your life. This is so crucial to your life. I want to see how, how you, you need to see and understand how important this is. He puts a high premium on that. And I, and I think for us, particularly today, when, when marriage is being redefined and the culture is, is, is not only just loosening, but throwing off any sort of boundaries around that covenant, we as Christians need clarity desperately. Desperately, desperately. And just in daily life, because it, it, it will so easily permeate our lives, and lies will be spoken into the midst of our hearts. When, when, when tensions break and things get difficult in marriage, kids come along and all of these things, and the culture begins to speak lies. And we need clarity. We need to come back to the Scripture and say, Lord, show me the premium that you put on marriage. Because it's hard. I was talking with uh, Eddie Grace turned seven yesterday, and uh, we were having a conversation uh, one one evening this past week, and and, and we were talking about you know, fidelity in in relationships. I mean, she's seven years old, and she's starting to, against my judgment and admonition, take an interest in boys. Um, and, and so, you know, we're having these conversations, and you know, we're we're having a very just blunt conversation about. Boys and girls, and all the things that you know go along with this. And I'm sitting there going, "All right, Lord, grant me grace," because I mean, she's a seven-year-old. And how do you how do you discuss fidelity in marriage and 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 abstinence? I mean, how do you how do you have this conversation with a seven-year-old? You know, I don't know about you, but if you were parents, I didn't get that chapter in my book on parenting. You know, and so we're having this conversation. How do I how do I capture that in such a way that she can understand the high value of abstinence? As she moves forward, and and, and so I'm, I'm picturing this as 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 sweetie, you gotta you gotta let me let me show let me tell it to you this way, okay? You imagine Christmas. Christmas comes and there's gifts under the tree, okay? There's one gift that's under there that's for you, okay? It's wrapped. You don't know what's in it, okay? But you're you're excited. You're anticipating it, okay? You you know you, you but you know you gotta wait. You can't you can't open it just yet. And you come in one morning and somebody's opened that gift and has played with whatever was there. Pieces are all about. How does that make you feel? And her face just dropped and she goes, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I said, I, I said, that's right. I said, you would feel terrible. You would feel terrible. I said, I said this, is, this is your virginity. This is a picture of your virginity, and it's a gift to your future husband, just as his is to you. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift to you. And, and I want to help her see that God puts a high premium on, on your relationship with your future spouse to help her to, undersee, to, to see that. And I see in this scripture and so many others, this is what God has given to us. These Christians need clarity on marriages right now. So that we're not swept away in the midst of culture. Second, also see, see how far the Pharisees had fallen in, in depravity. Okay? Because again, 
what strikes us here, or should strike us, is that the man's not present. Okay? They didn't follow the letter of the laws. They should. If they were really wanting to uphold God's high premium on marriage and, and, and doing what they originally set out to do, which was to really push for holiness amongst the Jews, that's what when they, when they were originally formed, that's what they were really, really pushing for, but over time began to succumb to the temptations of culture. Right? Well, the, the man's not here. Okay, now we, I mean, we can speculate. Okay, ultimately, we don't know. Perhaps, maybe, he was a prominent man amongst the, you know, the Jews. And she's caught in the, in the act, and for him to come forward would implicate a lot of people. Right? And so he's just kind of, you know, he's hushed-hushed, and she's brought out as she's the one. She's the one here. Now, they're not, they're not upholding the true letter and even the spirit of the law that's there. Okay? The religious leaders have become corrupted by the very society they were, they, they were postured and put into in order to project God's image and God's holiness and who he was. And, and I can't help but look at in our culture and, and particularly our, our Christian culture and go, oh my word, I mean, this very thing is happening. I mean, did anybody, did anybody read an article or an article catch you on the news or anything about a, another Christian leader who had fallen or, or something had come out, you know, in the news about sin that had been just buried and buried and buried for months and years, and all of a sudden it's come to light, and 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 people are shocked. I mean, this this is this is the this is the sifting of the culture that we're in right now. Is is where sin is coming to light. Sin is coming to light, and temptations are coming, and church leaders are being hit, I think, I think, harder, at least in our culture, perhaps, than they have been at least in a long time. And, and, and there's that sifting that's going on. And so, and so I, 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 I pray that, that at Haven Ridge, that Alan and I would maintain honesty with you as a church body, and, and that you would pray for us, you know, that, that we would stay above reproach, and, and that we would seek to come daily, to the throne of grace and, and, and pray that we would lead our families in integrity and that, and that we would pray the same for you all. Um, because as I read this, I look at this and I go, I mean, I'm not above this. You're not above this. If, if these men who had been in this culture had the law of God before them, studied it and knew it, could be so easily swept away and so could I. So, there's the setting. There's the setting. Okay, these men have come before Jesus and they want to trap him. Okay, they've, they've read his playbook. What he's saying and the things he's doing is phenomenally offensive to the trajectory of their life. And they've read his playbook and they are trying to figure out how to turn the tables. They're trying to, ta- to, to figure out how to vest him, how to get him in trouble and basically, ultimately, kill him. And so they put this before him. They bring the woman before, before Jesus and they, they say, what do we do here? This woman's caught in a very act of adultery. The ma- law of Moses says to stone her, which was true. What do you say? So here's the trap. If Jesus 
agrees that the woman should be stoned, he gets in trouble with the Romans. Okay, the Romans were the overall ruling authority. If the, if the Pharisees uh, were, a, were a ruling party within the culture of the Jews, then the, the Romans were over them. You see, the Romans did not allow the Jews to carry out their own executions. It said, no, no, you, you, have, you have rule and you have law in these particular areas, but when it comes to capital punishment, now you've got to come through us. And so if Jesus had agreed with the Pharisees, said, yep, you're right, stoner, right here and right now, they could run to the Romans and go, hey, this guy over here, here's what he, he's, you know, he, he's a threat to Caesar. But if Jesus rebukes their request, well, now he's going against the law of Moses. And they, can, they have something to go to the Jews with. And say, so, oh, he's trying to usurp the law of Moses here. So they've, they've put him in a, in a bit of a pickle, at least from our perspective. So what does Jesus do? Everybody kind of is sitting there, you know, ringing the what would Jesus do bracelets. You know, what is he going to do here? What is he going to do? I'm, I'm reminded as I was reading the story, I was reminded of um, being in elementary school. In elementary school, we had, back behind the school, we had the playground, and we had fences and stuff, you know, there, and there was a playground, and then there was this huge field that backed up to the woods. And uh, when I was in, I don't know, second, no, third grade, maybe fourth grade or so, um, we would we'd love to go out at recess, and, and we'd play football. No, no, we wouldn't let us play tackle football. We'd play two-hand touch football. And uh, I remember getting out there, and we'd, you know, we'd divvy up in teams, and I mean, this was just, you know, this was backyard football, you know, so it was just kind of like we threw some jackets out, and like, there's the goal line, and, you know, here's kind of here's kind of what you do. But you had your, t- you know, your two teams. I remember being on a team, and I never played, I, I played soccer, you know, as I grew up, and so football was kind of a new, it, it was, I, it, I wasn't very good at it, you know, as far as, like, being able to read plays and all this other kind of stuff, and especially as a, you know, third and fourth grader. But I remember sitting there going, I gotta get there. How do I get there? And all these guys would line up in front of me and looking at them. I was not a big kid, still not a big kid, you know. And I'm like, how am I gonna get there? And I was, re- I was really never the quarterback because the quarterback kind of had to like know what they were doing. And the guy who was the quarterback, he'd always kind of pull us in together and you know be like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. And he'd lay out the plan, and we'd do it in a huddle, you know, so nobody else knew. And then we'd line up, and the other team they were trying to guess what we were gonna do. You know, and if we played things right, we could shoot the gap, or you know, we'd we'd, we'd orchestrate things, and we'd we'd score for a touchdown. You know, but it, I remember sitting there just going, "How are we gonna get there?" And I look at this, and I'm like, "It's it's almost like the other side is trying to figure out. They figured out a way to to snare Jesus. They're like, we're we're gonna get him. We're gonna turn the ball over. We're gonna run the other direction." And Jesus does this huddle thing. You know, he stoops down and he kind of writes the play in the ground. Nobody else can see it. The author, the author doesn't even write, doesn't even tell us what he says. But he sort of writes the play in the ground. I know. He writes this phenomenal play of grace. So here's the play. Three things happen here. One, notice that he stoops. Okay, we can go straight to what he, you know, what he, his, you know, his writing. But notice that he stoops. It says, but Jesus stooped down. And, verse, uh, and, then, and then it says that Verse 7, he straightened up, and then he stooped down, right again on the ground. And then when they've left, he straightens back up. 
I don't know about you, but I think the natural reaction for us, at least for me, when a threat comes to me, especially if I, if I know I'm in the right, it is to stand taller. You know, it's not to kneel or to get down because that's a, that's a posture of submission, right? I mean, the last thing I want is to feel smaller than my adversary. But Jesus, who's the, he's the divine Son of God. He's the one who had already condescended. He's, he'd left his place in glory. He took on flesh, clothed himself as a man, subjected himself to all the frailties of humanity. He kneels even lower to show grace. Don't let that pass you. J- Jesus could, uh, could, could have just crushed these men right here. Right here, right now, just snapped his fingers, brought him to the throne of judgment. You know, I mean, so, so many things could have happened. And Jesus does the unexpected and he stoops. What grace Jesus had. So he stoops. Secondly, he writes. He writes this play on the ground. And we can speculate all day long. And people have. What did he write? What did he write on the ground? Maybe he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13, which said, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Maybe he wrote that in there to remind the scribes and Pharisees. Maybe he just doodled. Maybe he's like, "Mm, I've got to think about this one. I'm going to just... I don't really think that's what he did. But people have speculated. Maybe he wrote their own names. Wrote the names of the men who were standing there on their own sins. Maybe more specifically, these men were like the man who didn't show up to his own execution. Perhaps they had mistresses of their own. And he was looking out and he was writing down in the sand the names of those women and looking at each man. You know, Whatever he wrote stopped these men in their tracks. It cut them to the quick such that they from the oldest to the youngest, perhaps the oldest, who was most acquainted with their own sins, dropped their stones and left. They knew they were not worthy to administer justice on this woman. Jesus said, whoever is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone. I think when we, when we meet others, we've been touched by the gospel. We see sin in their life. We come to them with grace. Not with the stone. We, try, we, we posture ourselves to come alongside them. So often people, especially when we start talking about Christ and, and bringing sin before them, they begin to put up their shields to deflect stones. pray that we as a church and that you as individuals would posture yourself towards people that they see when you talk about the gospel, you don't come with stones. You don't come with stones. A lot of times the only way to do that is to tell part of your own story. That they see you're not standing in the shooter's box. You're standing on the chopping block next to them. 
So these men walk away. None of them stay. And yet Jesus, so Jesus and this woman are left alone. And Jesus, having stooped, stands, returns to a position of authority. And notice Jesus doesn't leave with the rest of them either. And he asks, he says, where are your accusers? And, and she thinks she's baffled. She says, there, there's none left. They're all, they're all gone. And Jesus, now, no, Jesus, he's, well, one of our themes in this study is, is the divinity of Jesus. And so I want you to see the divinity of Christ here. Christ remains because he's the only one who's justified in picking up a stone. He knows all of her sin. He doesn't know just the, he, he knows more than just the act that she's just committed and been caught uh, in the very act of every sin she's ever committed. And so him, the only one who's without sin, who's justified in casting a, a stone, does the phenomenal thing of setting her free. He does what Paul writes in Romans 8, and he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I don't condemn you either. Those should be precious, precious words for any Christian. They should catch our heart and hold on to us. But notice this is not without cost. And this is oftentimes, I think, where, where an important point it can be lost, especially today. Because we can point at this and go, oh, this was so sweet. This was and just, a, just a wonderful emotional sentimentality that kind of comes out of this. But notice that Jesus does not say this without cost. When Jesus said this and he looks at this woman and says, neither do I condemn you, he knows that in order for that to be true, he's got to go to the cross. That sin has to be paid for somehow. That he's got to go to Calvary. See, there's the balance in this world that we can't ignore. That forgiveness is never without cost to someone. And that was true with Christ. He knew that. He knew that looking at that woman, that if he was to forgive her, he had to go to the cross. Just as with the woman at the well. Looking at her, he knew that in order to have that conversation, for that to be true, all the grace that was given there in John 4, he had to go to the cross. All the conversations you see Jesus have with so many other people in the Gospels, in order for any grace that he gives to them, if he is who he says he is, he's got to go to the cross. And when he was on the cross, and when he said it is finished, all those sins were paid for. <coughs> it was complete. I can't help but think that on the day of judgment, it's going to be like this. There's not going to be an opportunity to defend. You hear so many people just say, well, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with Jesus. I'm going to have a conversation with God. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, the, and there's, I think that's so many thoughts with people is that, that when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I'm going to be able to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds, and my good deeds are going to weigh outweigh my bad deeds. And that's because that's the way I feel. But notice with, with, with these men, that there's, no, there's no opportunity for that that when the books are opened, our mouths will be closed and our only hope will be in Christ. 
Our only hope will be in the grace of Christ. So there's Jesus' play. Whatever he wrote in the ground was drawing out grace for this woman and ultimately drawing out grace for all who would believe in him. And lastly, the victory. You know, thinking back to that schoolyard football, you know, when you make it past the the defense and the play, you see the play's working. Whoever's got the ball usually wasn't me, somebody else, you know, I can hardly catch it. No, they make it past and they're going for the goal line and, and, and you're just cheering. Here's the victory. Two things. One, Jesus tells the woman two things. She's, he says, go. He says, go. She's released from the court back to her daily life. Now, now catch this. Okay, here's our, here's our application. Two points of application. Her life was at an abrupt end. I don't think she woke up this morning and thought, you know, this is going to be my last day on earth. I'm going to get stoned at the end of the day. I don't think that even crossed her mind. She was caught in the very act of adultery and all of a sudden, whatever was going through her mind through the course of that day, whatever she had planned for that week, it came to a screeching halt as she's standing there with men holding stones knowing I'm getting ready to die. Whatever mattered to her previously didn't matter. What was important to her an hour, hour ago was, was not. It all wasn't a big deal. Her whole value system was challenged when Jesus said, neither do I continue. Go. Go. When that whole value system was challenged, hopefully... It was changed. You notice in here what we're not told is that this woman left and she rode off into the sunset and she never sinned again. And, you know, she met Prince Charming and it doesn't end like a fairy tale. You know, so many of these stories in scriptures, they, they just, they're, they're left with a cliffhanger. And, but that's for a purpose. They're left like that so that we as the readers would absorb the very challenge that's given. You're left with that very challenge so that you'll absorb that yourself. So let me ask you this. Does the gospel have this kind of effect on you? Do you simple, simply hear it and it's the old, old story and you're like, phew, man, that was close. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that I got, I got that cloak of righteousness. Okay, now let's go on about the regular business of everyday life. Do you know that God has prepared good works for you so that you would walk in them that he, if you're a Christian, you name the name of Christ, that he has sent you out from the presence of his court, that you might be a reflection of his grace and mercy to an unbelieving world. It was the intent with the woman at the well. That was the intent with this woman here. Go. He doesn't say, welcome into my father's presence. He says, go. He says, go. So are you doing that, Christian? Are you... Are you are you conscious of the grace of the gospel that's been given to you and the command to go, to be a light into a darkened world? Because it's the very next thing that follows here in John. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A light isn't meant to just keep it under a bushel, right? You let it out. It's the nature of light. 
it's meant to illuminate. So what are you doing that, Christian? He says, go, in what manner are you going about your daily life? And then lastly, he says, go and sin no more. You see, we sing that song that, that we're freed. We sing Christian songs about being freed. We're, we're, we're not freed to just go do whatever we want to. We're not freed to just go sin more. We're freed to life holiness. That which we give our lives to is that which we're enslaved to. Before you know Christ, you're enslaved to sin. When you know Christ, you're enslaved to holiness in God, which brings joy, brings completeness, brings all of the fruits and the, and the benefits of being a redeemed child of God. He says, go, sin no more. And so holiness is the lifestyle that we're to lead. That our affections are no longer driven by fleshly passions, but by the Spirit. And that's the drumbeat of the New Testament. Right? That, that in, when you read the letters, when you read the letters in the New, in the New Testament, you get the, the, the first part of so many of those letters is, right, church, here's how you're to think in light of what God has done. And then the second half of those letters is, okay, now that you're thinking that way, here's how you're to live. This woman was touched by grace right then and there. And Jesus says, now, now live out of the grace that you've been given. Okay? But to be sure, this isn't a debtor's ethic. Okay, that would be very easy to come out of this and this woman go, oh man, I've, just, I've got to basically try and pay back this grace that Jesus has given to me. But that's not the idea at all. And that's not the idea throughout enti- the entirety of Scripture. Not a debtor's ethic, but a dependent virtue. The Gospel sends us to depend upon God more and more for the grace that He gives us in justifying us. Not to try and earn it back. That turns grace up on its head. that we're released from his judgment, but not from his helpful presence. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You think of this woman, and he, he released her, said, go and sin no more. I don't know about you, but I'd be sitting there going, I know my lifestyle. I know. I, 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 know, my, I know the weight of temptations. And now is it up to me to, to, to do that? But the wonderful thing about the rest of the story of Scripture is that God doesn't leave us by Him, by ourselves, to work out our salvation on our own. He sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. He sends us out from His judgment, but not from His presence, not from His power. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All we have is but to call on Him. So let me ask you, does the weight of the gospel of grace, does the weight of God's grace towards you in the cross affect how you speak to others? Does it affect the rain on your speech with other people? Is your speech with grace or season with salt so that you'll know how to respond to each person? about how you listen to people. 
Does God's grace and the gospel towards you permeate your heart and grip you so much that when you sit and you listen to, to, to people, it's not like, I want this person to, to, this person's talking, but I want this person to think much of me, and so I want to impress this person. And or, 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 or is it that this person is fashioned in the image of God and something's going on here, and so I want to devote my attention to this person. You, you, when you sit with somebody that like, really listens to you, you, you know the difference, you know? You walk away from something, man, that person like really listened and cared for me. Versus somebody who you can tell them, they're not really listening to me. Or, or it's a conversational listening. I'm guilty of that, the conversational listening. You know, okay, we're getting into a conversation and I'm playing the conversation game. You say something, I say something. You know, I'm working with this with my kids, particularly with Ellie. You know, it's, it's I, I'll say something and all of a sudden it's like the string of, you know, of, of words and, and, and senses. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Here's how this works. I'll say something, you listen, and then you say something. And we'll do this. Your dinner's a great time to do this, you know. But it's like, it's like this pattern kind of permeates our lifestyle so much that it's like, okay, we learn how to play this conversation game, but we don't really learn how to listen. Does the gospel so grip your heart that when you sit down with somebody, you really listen to? Does it affect your tone of voice with your children, with your grandchildren, with your spouse? Do you come to the gospel daily in your in, in your devotions or in your time with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to be tempted to not reflect you. I'm going to struggle. I'm going to wrestle. You've given me this call to holiness, but I can't do it on my own. May you revive your spirit within me. Rekindle within me grace. So as I go out into the world, I can be a light for you. See, the question for holiness isn't, can I do this? It's, does this act or does this decision exalt Christ or does it slander Him? Am I making much of Christ in my, in my life? Or am I making much of myself or making much of someone else? Because there's the victory. There's the cheer that goes up towards the end and the call is go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the story that's here, that we can wrestle with it. Thank you that we have a picture of the gospel clearly laid out. I thank you for those precious words. Neither do I condemn you. So Father, would that land in our hearts as we go from this place that Father Christ would be our highest treasure. That we would go and in our going we would love Jesus more and more. That, Father, you would give us a heart and mind for the things that you value and the things that you treasure and that we would own them, that they would become our treasure more and more. And that, Father, we would desire holiness in ourselves, not for our glory, but for yours, because we're fashioned in your image. 
Would you strengthen marriages, Father, that are weak, that are broken? Father, you'd bring clarity into our lives that we would see your picture of marriage in the scriptures and of family. We would cling to them, Father, in the wake of a culture that seeks to sweep us away and feed lies to us. That autonomy and self-preservation and, and feeding desires that are rooted in self are our highest goal of happiness. Father, would you keep us that is the as the waves of temptation in the midst of our culture come, that we wouldn't succumb to sin. And that, Father, when it, when it happens, that we would be quick, quick to confess to one another. That we might hear from each other, neither do I condemn you. But, Father, we might speak grace to one another and that we would lift high a call to holiness. We would lift up one another. We would link arms and we would walk in holiness together as sinners redeemed by grace. Father, thank you for this body, body of believers and these folks who've gathered under that umbrella of grace. Would you strengthen us in the week ahead for the work that you have for us to do that you might receive the glory and, pra- and praise now and forever. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.